This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. It might sound hard for people to think about this now, but in 1800, Germany didn't have a very good reputation for beer. And then the next weird bit is the fact that someone set up a new private brewery in communist East Germany in 1949 just to brew Gozer. I, I keep saying to people, you know, the whole thing about IPA, everyone thinks IPA is this huge... Um, huge thing that's never ever going to disappear it's always going to be there and all i would say is history proves you wrong merry christmas everyone what you're about to hear originally aired in january of last year this holiday season we're bringing back a couple of my favorite episodes from 2018. this week you'll hear from ron pattinson as he gives us a look back in time at the sour beers of 19th century germany if you go back before 1850, German brewing looks very different to what it is today. Um, what people think of nowadays as German beer is mostly really Bavarian beer and has very little to do with the stuff that they brewed in the north of Germany. Well, not very little. It has absolutely nothing to do with everything they brewed in North Germany until about 1860, when you first have, have lager beers turn up. And so you look at the traditional North German styles, mostly they're very low alcohol, quite often sour, quite often made either with wheat in them or even multiple grains. Basically a brewing tradition that has much more in common with uh, Belgium than it does with Bavaria. Uh, and you see that's how those sour beers fit in there. And, and something like Berliner Weisse, I would say, is is in a continuum of sour beer styles, sour wheat beers that goes from Poland all the way to the North Sea coast. And so Berliner Weisse is in the same family, I would say, as Belgian wit beer and Belgian Gozer. Gozer. That, that these are all beers of a similar family. They've got different you've got different sort of specific ones that pop up all over the place. But this is a generic thing. And you have to think of 
pre-1850, North Germany basically fitting in with Belgian beer styles more than it does with modern lager styles. Were there any other sort of main beer styles of the day that were you know, not intentionally sour? Um, well, not all the North German beer styles were sour. A, a lot of them were. Um, and the, the, the level of sourness probably varied depending on how they'd been made. Um, but it was all very small-scale stuff. I mean, you also have these insanely strong and hoppy beers as well that they brewed in North Germany. I mean, even though the vast majority were under 3% ABV, you get the occasional crazy 11% one, like Adam beer, which is a completely different type of beer, which is also sour, but sour in a different way. Um, and they were competing with, with beers from abroad. So it might sound hard for people to think about this now, but in 1800, Germany didn't have a very good re reputation for beer. And you read German sources and they say, well, you know, the better beer comes from either side of us. So either from Bohemia or from England, and that Germany's actually not that good for at making beer. And it's only really when you have Sedlmeier modernized lager brewing in the 1840s after he'd been to the UK and he'd learned about modern malting techniques, he'd learned how to use a hydrometer, all stuff like that, okay. then you suddenly see that Bavarian brewing modernizes and industrializes, and that basically takes over the whole of the rest of Germany. Yeah, let's talk about that more, because there was a big shift in the second half of the century. You know, you just mentioned some of the things, but what, what really happened there? Um, what really happened? You find that once Settlemeyer is... is put in just lager brewing on an industrial basis then you see the whole of the industry in in munich first and then in a lot of the rest of bavaria modernizes you have the same thing happening in austria and it's this new powerhouse of brewing and it basically just bulldozes the north of germany and so uh, in the paper it's i find that the one table is really interesting which is showing uh, beer output in the last couple of decades of the 19th century in the Brausteuergebiet, which is basically North Germany, it's basically the non-lager bits of Germany. And you see that, it, that the amount of top fermenting beer being brewed stays virtually constant, whereas the amount of bottom fermenting beer virtually triples. And so what you see ha happening is that there's this old industry that's basically just going nowhere, and this new industry that's come in and completely takes over. And that's over a pretty short period of time, right? Like maybe 20 years or something? Yeah, over 20 years. But this is when the, the Bavarian breweries got the chance to do this. And it's not just the Bavarian breweries. It's, well, it's first it's the Bavarian breweries bringing in their beer to North Germany. And then the second phase is you get all these new breweries being set up. So if you look at the North German lager breweries today, you'll find that very few of them have founding dates before 1850. The reason is that, that, that the old top-fermenting breweries didn't convert to bottom-fermenting, which is what happened in some countries. You had a completely new set of breweries move in. So what you had is these people, all these... Uh, it's all to do with the, the whole Grundertype thing uh, in the second half of the 19th century. You really have a huge industrial expansion in Germany. and lager brewing in the north is part of this and so it's people that come in you've got these old small family family owned family run top fermenting breweries and then people come in they found limited companies it's all very modern they raise all this capital they have these 
big fancy new lager brewing plants and the older breweries just can't compete with them long term. Let's hear about um, Berliner Weiss, both past and present. There was uh, a lot that you wrote about that really surprised me there. Um, what, about it being smoked at one point? Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, that, that, that's one of the things that I found most surprising when I looked into the history of Berliner Weiss. I spent a lot of time looking at it, and weirdly, it's probably the best documented of any German beer style. And I think that's partly because you've got the uh, the VLB. And so people from there paid lots of attention to it, obviously, because it was a local style. Um, and so you've got the professors from there wrote about the style in immense detail. So I've got really good stuff about it. Uh, but yeah, the thing about it being smoked, that really surprised me. I also I also was really blown away that it, I didn't realize it was sold, you know, a day or two after being brewed. Uh, that That really surprised me. Yeah, this is really typical of the... I think this is one of the reasons a lot of the old top fermenting beers were low alcohol, that they were sold incredibly fresh. So they didn't even really complete the primary fermentation in the brewery. Um, this is the thing, the, the further you go back into history, this is more typical, actually, that the, the beer leaves the brewery earlier. This is the... It's like with Porter. The big innovation of Porter was, in fact, that they didn't have the beer leave the brewery right at the end of primary fermentation, that they aged it themselves in the brewery. And that was something no one had done, had done before in Britain. So this is 1720 in Britain that is when they basically started aging the beer properly before they sent it out. And it's, it's really typical of all these North German styles. You see it with Goza, you see it with brown beer, that they all do the same thing, that they send the beer out really, really young, Primary fermentation finishes uh, in the sort of reseller or the pub cellar, and then... And then they actually they, bottle it themselves there too, right? And they bottle it, and, and another common theme is they water it down. So, I mean, I, some of the things I, 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 uh, in the article where, where I've got these analyses, obviously these are the beers as they were sold. So the beer, when it got to the publican or the reseller, might have been quite different. It might have actually been a fair bit more alcoholic, but that's just how it ended up because this is obviously someone's gone around and, and has bought beer that's on sale. And so then, then you get what's on sale, not what's left the brewery. And this seems to be a recurring theme. I keep reading about this, about these North German styles, about them watering it down when they bottled it. Wow. How about, um, do you want to talk a little bit about kind of managing the mixed yeast and bacteria cultures and sort of how that evolved? Um, yeah, well, it, it, it seems to be slightly shrouded in mystery, but it's, it's in the second half of the 19th century where, obviously, I can see what's happening. You've got the whole of, of uh, societies industrializing and people are going to look at the processes more closely. And I assume that originally... Berliner Weisser, it just relied on picking up lactic acid bacteria during the process, and that would do the the uh, the lactic part of the fermentation. And then at a certain point, obviously, people wanted to control it more, and they managed to come up with these mixed cultures. I've never understood how they managed to do this, because they always say it's difficult to get them to work together. But if you see, um, one of the people from the VLB, Schoenfeld, 
he did this wonderful thing on where he was analyzing all the way through the fermentation process. He was looking at the balance between the Saccharomyces and the Lactobacillus. And it goes all over the place during the fermentation process. And then at the end of it, magically, it's the same <laughs> proportion again of the two. So they'd obviously found something magical here. Because, I mean, I know, for example, Adnams in Britain, they have two yeast strains in their pitching strain, right? And they have to have both of them, otherwise they can't get the flavor and the attenuation right. But they don't propagate at the same rate, so they have a huge problem trying to keep the two of them in the right balance in their pitching strain. And when I heard that story, I was thinking, God, it's amazing what they've done in Berlin, that they've managed to have these two things that are completely different, and yet somehow, somehow automatically balance each, each other out during the fermentation process. Tell us about kettle souring and the technique behind that. No, 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 this drives me nuts, actually. Right. You have the one, the Franken method, where the one guy did it for a bit. It's not in the 19th century, it's in the 20th century. It's just after World War One, I, I think. And he played around with doing this method. Didn't do it for that long because he couldn't get the beer to taste right. And the main reason he couldn't get the beer to taste right was because it didn't have the Britannomyces phase in it. Uh, um... But in general, the, 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 the Franke method was very, very briefly used in Germany. Um, a lot of people seem to think that this is a traditional method in, 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 uh, in Berlin, this kettle souring. Really not. I mean, the, you, you look and see what was happening in the 70s and 80s with the remaining breweries, and there were two methods that they used. You had the one that all the other breweries used, and you had the rubbish one that Kindle used. <laughs> And what and, and what the other ones did, so the the one in East Germany and the two or three other ones left in West West Berlin, they all did a mixed fermentation. Saccharomyces, lactobacillus together, fermenting at the same time. What Kindle did, they did separate fermentation. So they split the wort, half of it was saccharomyces, half of it fermented at forty-five degrees centigrade with lactobacillus then blended back together again at the end. Okay. Um, I was really glad when I found out this is what they did, because I never liked their beer, the Kindle <laughs> one. And, and I was happy to find out that they hadn't brewed it the right way, and that's why it didn't taste right. <laughs> uh, and so the, there were several problems with this method, but the big one being, that it again, that it didn't have the, the Britannomyces phase, so that if you don't have the Britannomyces at the end... You don't get the right character of the beer. You don't get the low enough final gravity. You just don't get something that tastes like Berliner Weisser, as, as, as far as I'm concerned. And, and I was so happy to find out that there was a reason why the Kindle one didn't taste right. <laughs> I, I was there actually studying at the VLB about the time that, that they went to pre-mix. And so, you know, before most of the syrups were being added at the pub, but they, they started adding some of those... It's just so wrong. I, 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 being honest, though, I mean, in my my time in East Berlin and then in the 1980s, in the communist days, they quite often had draft Berliner Weisse in Berlin. And they always looked at me really weird when I drank it straight. Huh. 
because no one did. Everyone, everyone drank it mixed by that time. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I'd already got used to Belgian beer by then, so I, I, and I quite like sour beer. So there you go. Berlin advice. Well, it was wonderful. So, I mean, I, I'm so so glad that I got to taste the East Berlin Schultheis Berliner Weisser because that was such a magnificent beer. What year? Would, best- what year would would that have been? This was um, 87, 88. It's honestly one of the best beers I've ever had. It was as good as the very best Lambics. Coming up. I used to wish that more people brewed Goza, and I've come to regret that after having seen all all the abominations that people make. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. This Master Brewers Podcast is proudly sponsored by Barna Mechanical, a full-service design-build firm specializing in turnkey process and utility systems for the brewing industry. We partner with some of the best craft brewers in the U.S. to ensure the great beer they brew is what their customers get in every glass, bottle, can, or keg. You know beer. We know breweries. Additional support provided by... ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up... Yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, triclamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District St. Louis meets at Anheuser-Busch January 17th. Is PCR right for your brewery QC program? Check out the Master Brewers webinar January 24th. The District Ontario Annual Conference is January 31st and February 1st. District St. Louis meets February 21st at Third Wheel Brewing. And the 2019 California Joint Technical Conference is February 28th and March 1st in Paso Robles. It's not too early to start making plans for the 2019 Master Brewers Conference. If you can only make it to one conference in 2019, this should be it. We're really mixing it up this time and heading to the Calgary Convention Center to see how Alberta celebrates Halloween. Will there be a costume party? Only Tressa knows. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. Let's get on to Goza. That that beer style has been um, has has a pretty colorful history. How about guiding us through that? All right, Goza. Um. Yeah, started off in Goslar, in the Hearts, then, which is where the name comes from, the Goslar River, uh, then moved over to Leipzig for some reason, and became heavily associated with Leipzig in the late 19th century. Uh, was never a style that was brewed in any great quantities. If, if you compare it to, to say, Berliner Weisser, there was a time in the late 19th century where they were brewing a lot of Berliner Weisser, and it really was one of the major beers drunk in the city. Leipzig, it was never like that. There were only ever a limited number of uh, Goza pubs that sold 
yeah, that, that concentrated on Gosa, but they were a minority of the pubs and nothing like most of the beer sold there. Uh, I did work out how much they... I'm, I'm just flicking through the article here to find out because I, I know that somewhere I've got... A, 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 I say exactly how much Gosa was brewed, but it wasn't very much. I mean, I, I think it was like about... Yeah, oh, here it is. Seven and a half, ten thousand hectolitres a year. Which... So what's that in terms of U.S. barrels? Ten, fifteen thousand. Yeah, and the history is really interesting because it kind of you know disappeared for years at a time. It seems like. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's. Uh, I mean, the, the problem was that it basically only had the Rittergut's brewery that was brewing it um, in the twentieth century. Uh, there were more breweries if you go back into the nineteenth century, but after World War One, they pretty much had a monopoly on it, and when they were taken over and and closed by the communists after world war two that was basically it and I, I i find it amazing that it made a comeback after that the fact that there's just been this one brewery that made it there was never a huge amount of it and then the next weird bit is the fact that someone set up a new private brewery in communist east germany in 1949 just to brew goza he must have really liked it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah i know it's just like what yeah. what yeah so there's it's, a few there's a few other interesting things about it so obviously it, it had you know salt and and ground coriander and like berliner weiss like we were talking about before goza was also delivered to the taverns while it was still you know actively fermenting the the thing that really surprised me you wrote about uh, the characteristic long neck bottles that weren't actually closed with a cap or a cork but with a plug of yeast that naturally went up the neck. That sounds crazy. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, it is crazy. So, yeah, so basically the way that they that they seal the bottles is they just have the long neck. It's very active. I guess there's a lot of yeast in it, and it just naturally forms a yeast plug in the neck wow. as it ferments, which is... I'm not sure the last time anyone did that. I think the last time anyone did that was in the 60s. <laughs> um, I mean, they still you still have the one the Bayerischer Bahnhof. They they use the bottle, so it's like a brandy bottle, but with a you know, like a I don't know, a giraffe version of a brandy bottle, basically. Um, no, it's a it's, it's a it's a weird thing. But um, well, I also found it really interesting the thing about the the whole thing about the it reminds me of the whole cask beer thing in that. There's a lot that the landlord in the pub inputs into the beer in its final state. And so the whole thing about how customers would like it at different ages, so the landlords would have bottles of different ages so they could give it to the customers depending on how sour they wanted it and stuff. Um, yeah, it's quite a... And, and you can see that it's... Uh, it's a, the, the brewery didn't have complete control over how the finished beer was. Very little control, it sounds like. Yeah. It would drive Which, me crazy. Well, it, 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 it depends what sort of beer you are and how much responsibility you take. Um, to be honest, in Britain, it's a recurring theme in breweries that they go crazy. British breweries about all through the 20th century about the publicans not handling their beer properly. And... Um, just despairing that, that you know they've they've produced this really nice beer and then there's all these idiot landlords who ruin it before it gets sold yeah but i, I had this great experience i was at, i was at the harvey's brewery tap in lewis and 
Miles Jenner was going and getting us beers, and I noticed that he's the head brewer there. And I noticed every time he was going up, and he was first getting a half and tasting it before he ordered all the rest. And I was saying, "Oh, what are you doing there?" And he's saying, oh, "I'm just making sure the beer's presented in the condition that I would like it to be." <laughs> so, so basically, he was checking that the beer was right before he gave it to us. I used to wish that more people brewed Goza, and I've come to regret that after having <laughs> seen all the, all the abominations that people make. Well, what, what, what advice do you have to those who are making it to, to make it more authentic? Less salt. What else? Less, less salt, no fruit. And don't go crazy with the coriander. That'd be my advice. All right. And make sure, make sure it's properly sour. Because it should be. Uh, um, well, I re- recently found the the original spec sheet from the first trial brew of of, uh, of Goza, uh, and it gives the pH. And so this is the beer where this is the one where he took it, where uh, Goldhand took it to the people who were still who were hardcore old Goza drinkers. And so this is like about 20 years after they'd had the last one. So you have to, you know, be a bit reasonable. But this has got a pH of 3.1. So that's like enamel stripping sour. And you have to think, right, people aren't going to say something like that. That's not like a, a flavor you're going to forget. You're not going to say, oh, it, that's right, if it hadn't been a really sour originally, would you? <laughs> Well, Ron, it occurred to me while reading your article just how low cost many of these beers would have been to produce. I mean, the bulk of the energy costs are eliminated with air drying malt and minimal or no wort boiling. The beer is still fermenting on the way to the pub, so you're not tying up a bunch of vessels. I'm curious to what extent you think sour beer production could have been driven primarily by economics. Well, everything's driven by economics. <laughs> I'm, 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 uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a materialist. I believe economics drives everything. So yeah, of course it did. Um, and if you can produce beer that people like um, and are prepared to pay money for, and you can do it really cheaply, you will. And and that's why these beers died out. It's because people came up with something that which was um, I was going to say better, not necessarily better, but you know something that was consistent and and also quite possibly cheaper. Um, when you have the big industrial breweries turn up, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's, it's just kind of amazing to me to think about it from a, you know from a managing a brewery standpoint. I mean, you know, energy cost is is your is your biggest cost, and so you know you've taken out all the energy of you know. Yeah, of well, we've also taken you've also taken out a lot of the energy of moving the beer from um, from the brewery to to the consumer because it's not going to be going very far. And this is the thing, that these were very fresh beers. It, uh, you could compare it to the whole uh, Nor- New England IPA thing, where you've got beer that's very perishable. And so you've got something where you're basically giving it to people as soon as or even before it's finished. Yeah. And you can do that if you're selling the, you know, selling beer in the next street and 
you know, maybe one town over. You try doing that over a large area and that's not going to work anymore. And you see that a common factor of all these beers is that they were always only ever available in a really limited geographical region. Yeah, that's right. So they were sold pretty much where they were brewed. Um, they, they didn't do any traveling or anything. And that's the other thing that the lager breweries have, that they have beer that you can ship over large distances. So you're not confined to this tiny little local market anymore. The, uh, the conclusion of your article lacked optimism. You wrote that the, a revival of sour beer styles is unlikely in Germany and that's, that it's more of a question of of whether what little remains can cling on. Why is that? Why the lack of hope for a cra- uh, you know, craft beer-like renaissance for these beers? Well, the weird thing is that, that, that in Germany, you've got the craft beer thing going on, but they're just brewing German, uh, not German styles, they're just brewing American styles. I find that really depressing um, because Germany's got this amazing heritage of different types of beer and loads of stuff that you could plug into. And just brewing, uh, you know, a double IPA, West Coast style. Um, yeah, where's that taking you, really? But that's what people want. That's that. That's what the the younger market in in Germany, at least at the moment, wants. They want stuff like the people drink everywhere else, really. Um, which is depressing. I mean, I, I mean, I work with one guy who's. Uh, who does we did we actually did a an east german style porter a beer and he's into doing the old german stuff but very few people are and it, it, it's depressing because germany's got such an amazing history of, of beer brewing a really really varied one so you can find anything you want in the german you know in the in the german history so why do you have to bother you know just pretending you're in california right right grass is always greener i guess i don't know <laughs> I don't, I mean, yeah I, I, I find it weird i really do find it weird and you know i, I, I try and uh, i do my best to try and get people to appreciate their own beer cultures and and you know it, it's i'm not saying it's bad what's going on in the u.s but if everyone just copies what's going on in the u.s then the world's a poorer place i think yeah agreed uh ron you wrote about the dynamic nature of beer styles with many or perhaps most beer styles exhibiting dramatic changes throughout their history i'm very curious what you think about beer competitions like gabf where where so much energy goes into hitting a style guideline that is perhaps just a snapshot of a single point in a given beer style's complicated history um well i think it's uh... It's, I, I find it slightly crazy. It, having said that, I, I judged a, a competition not that long ago to, in, in October, which I think was to the BJCP rules. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that the, the idea of trying to pin down bid styles is ultimately futile. They're, they're always moving around. They, 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 they don't stay still. But, but this is what makes them fun. It, right. If beer history was all about people brewed Pilsner in 1842 and then everyone brewed stuff exactly like that right up until now, well, where would be the fun in that? But it's, it's actually much more complicated and things are always moving around. It's uh, <clears throat> it what makes, th- makes things fun. I, I keep saying to people, you know, the whole thing about IPA 
everyone thinks IPA is this huge, um, huge thing that's never, ever going to disappear. It's always going to be there. And all I would say is history proves you wrong. That was Ron Pattinson here on the Master Brewers podcast. If you like what you heard today, check out his article in the Master Brewers Technical Quarterly, Volume 54, Number 3. You can get there from the publications menu or by typing Pattinson into the industry's best search bar at mbaa.com. One hundred and thirty years ago, Master Brewers was built on the concept of brewers helping each other out so we could all make the best possible beer. That's still true to this day, and it's where a lot of the camaraderie in this industry originated. Master Brewers' award-winning Ask the Brewmasters is the best place to go for troubleshooting, where you'll find the industry's only discussion forum that's moderated for technical accuracy by a team of experts. See what everyone else is talking about at community.mbaa.com. United, we brew. I may be two things that you should have known, I may be three things that I should have mentioned, but I did. My fist full of courage, my heart full of rage. Well, I can't get stuck, I can't be losing too much, and then I'm heading out to any other place.